careof.com. You know your body, care of no science. Let's work together. Find the right vitamins, protein, and now collagen too, personalized just for you. Healthy doesn't have to be hard. Careof makes it easy. Take a quiz and tell Careof a little about yourself. They're good listeners. Get nutrients at work. Get your personalized recommendation backed by science and delivered to you. Stick with it long term. Keep the conversation going. Careof will just as your health needs change. A routine tailored to you. Careof will create and help you with a health plan with vitamins, supplements, and more that help you feel your best today and support you long term. Careof is with you. Once you have your tailored plan, Careof will help you stick with it, track your supplements, learn about how they work, and get the new recommendations as your health changes all in Careof's handy app. Say hello to your new healthy habit. Honest guidance, Careof will promise to be honest with you. That means Careof will show you the research and be transparent about how established it is. Careof doesn't pretend all supplements have equal levels of scientific evidence or traditional history because that isn't the truth. Careof, but Careof will always show you their work and tailor their guidance to you as an individual. Better ingredients. Careof's research and development system has traveled the globe so Careof can provide the most effective bioavailable and sustainable ingredients possible. Careof is transparent about their supply chain because they build products they want to take and then they deliver them straight to your door. SimplySafe.com Whole home protection. Protection for every window, room, and door against intruders, fires, water damage, medical emergencies, and more. All monitored 24-7 by professionals ready to dispatch police. Everything you need to know. Experts choose SimpleSafe Home Security. Named Best Home Security Overall by U.S. News and World Report and awarded by Popular Mechanics and more. Live professional f- alerts. SimpleSafe's monitor staff calls you when trouble is detected and stays with you until it's solved. Dispatch faster than usual visual f- with visual verification. Adding visual verification to your monitoring plan lets SimpleSafe verify your alarm is real so police can dispatch faster. It's a lot less expensive. SimpleSafe cut out the middleman and markup so you get more security for less with no contact. Prepare for the unexpected. Lose power, lose Wi-Fi, someone attacks the system, natural disaster, SimpleSafe is ready. Protects against fires and water damage. More than just intruders, SimpleSafe pros monitor against leaks, floods, fires, and more. Keep an eye inside and out. With HD security cameras for indoors and out, see what's happening all the time. Designed to disappear. From the tiny size of SimpleSafe sensors to easy one-touch control means you'll never notice your security system. Text people ignores pets. Motion sensors use a precision human form detection algorithm. Compare your security options. Traditional home security. Monitored by professionals. 36-month contact monitoring costs. 
37-53 a month, hardwired, need a landline, poor rating on Trustpilot, simply save the better way, monitored by professionals, no contracts, wireless, no drilling or landline required, great rating on Trustpilot, easy to set up yourself in no time. How it works, choose your security sensors, simply safe will walk you through exactly what your home needs and ship it to your front door in under a week. Set it up in just a few minutes. No tools needed or let one of SimpliSafe's pros do it for you. Sensors guard all your rooms and entry points. If there's a trouble, SimpliSafe's monitoring center will call you and if needed, dispatch algorithms. Authorities. More reasons to choose SimpliSafe. Arm, disarm from anywhere. Forgot to arm your system? Need to let someone in? Do it right from your phone? Anytime. Almost never change your batteries. Batteries last for almost a decade in SimpliSafe's entry sensors. The best lifespan in the industry. Battery life may vary based on use. Alexa, arm my system. Use your system with Alexa, Google Assistant, August Locks, Apple Watch, and more. Keep an eye on cabinets, safes, and more. Secret alerts quietly alerts you if someone assists. If someone accesses your private areas without sounding an alarm. Customize for your home. SimpliSafe will customize the right system for your home's needs. Incredible range. Many wireless security systems struggle to cover your entire house. SimpliSafe can cover your large homes with ease. Custom alerts for friends and family. Set up text alerts so friends can. Friends and family stay in the know. Duress pin. If someone forces you to disarm your system, your duress pin will secretly alert the authorities. Meet the station. Base station. The draws comes with a built-in cell connection to rapidly alert. SimpliSafe's Emergency Dispatch Center. Try it, test it, love it, or return it. Test SimpliSafe in your home for 60 days. Your system arrives ready to work. No drilling, no tools needed. If you aren't 100% satisfied, return it for a full refund. And SimpliSafe will even pay return shipping. Good morning. Hope you had a good week. Hope you're ready for U.S. President number 20, James Garfield, Part 1. James Abraham Garfield, November 19, 1831 to September 19, 1881, was the 20th President of the United States, serving from March 4, 1881 until his death by assassination six and a half months later. He is the only sitting member of the United States House of Representatives to be elected to the presidency. Garfield entered politics as a Republican in 1857. He served as a member of the Ohio State Senate Forum from 1859 to 1861, Garfield opposed Confederate secession, served as a Major General in the Union Army during the American Civil War, and fought in the battles of Middle Creek, Shiloh, and Chickamauga. He was, he was first elected to Congress in 1862 to represent Ohio's 19th District. Throughout Con Garfield's congressional service after the war, he firmly supported the gold standard and gained a reputation as a skilled orator. He initially agreed with radical Republican views on Reconstruction, but later favored a moderate approach to civil rights enforcement for freedmen. At the 1880 Republican National Convention, delegates chose Garfield, who was not, who had not sought the White House as a compromise presidential nominee on the 36th ballot. 
In the 1880 presidential election, he conducted a low-key front porch campaign and narrowly defeated Democrat Winfield Scott Hancock. Garfield's accomplishments as president included a resurgence of presidential authority against senatorial courtesy and executive appointments, purging corruption in the post office, and appointing a U.S. Supreme Court justice. He enhanced the powers of the presidency when he defied the powerful New York Senator Roscoe Conkling by appointing William H. Robertson to the lucrative post of collector of the Port of New York, starting a fracas that ended with Robertson's confirmation and Conkling's resignation from the Senate. Garfield advocated agricultural technology and educated electoral and civil rights for African Americans. He also proposed substantial civil service reforms, which were passed by Congress in 1883 and signed into law by his successor, Chester A. Arthur, as the Pendleton Civil Service Reform Act. On July 2, 1881, Charles J. Gitto, a, a disappointed and delusional office seeker, shot Garfield at the Baltimore and Potomac Railroad Station in Washington, D.C. The wound was not immediately fatal, but he died on September 19, 1881, Profession caused by his doctors. Gitto was executed for Garfield's murder in June 1882. Childhood and Early Life James Garfield was born the youngest of five children on November 19, 1831, in a log cabin in Tor- Orange Township, now Moreland Hills, Ohio. Orange Township had been the western in the Western Reserve until 1800, and like many who settled there, Garfield's ancestors were from New England. His ancestor, Edward Garfield, immigrated from Hillmorton, Warwickshire, England, to Massachusetts around 1630. James's father, Abraham, had been born in Worcester, New York, and came to Ohio to woo his childhood sweetheart, Mehetabel Balu, only to find her married. He instead wed her sister, Eliza, who had been born in New Hampshire. James was a name for an older brother who died in infancy. In early 1833, Abram and Eliza Garfield joined the Church of Christ, a decision that shaped their youngest son's life. Abram died later that year. James was raised in poverty in a household led by the strong-willed Eliza. He was her favorite child, and the two remained close for the rest of his life. Eliza Garfield remarried in 1842, but soon left her second husband, Warren Belfield, Bel- Warren Belden or Alfred Belden, and and a then scandalous divorce was awarded in 1850. James took his mother's side, and when Belden died in 1880, noted in his diary with satisfaction. Garfield enjoyed his mother's stories about his ancestry, especially his Welsh great-great-great-grandfathers great, and his ancestry who served as a knight of Carefilly Castle. Poor and fatherless, Garfield was mocked by his fellow boys and was very sensitive to slight, slights throughout his life. He escaped by reading all the books he could find. He left home at age, eight, at age 16 in 1847, Rejected by the only ship import in Cleveland. Garfield instead found work on a canal boat responsible for managing the mules that pulled it. This labor was used to good effect by Horatio Aldo, who wrote Garfield's campaign biography in 1880. After six weeks, illness forced Garfield to return home, and during his recuperation, his mother and a local education official got him to promise to postpone his return to the canals 
for a year and go to school. Accordingly, in 1848, he began a Giaga Seminary in, some, in nearby Chester Township, Giaga County, Ohio. Garfield later said of his childhood, I lament that I was born into poverty, and in this chaos of childhood, 17 years passed before I caught any inspiration. A precious 17 years when a boy with a father had, and some wealth might have become fixed in manly ways. Education, marriage, and early career. At the Geauga Academy, in which he attended from 1848 to 1850, Garfield learned academic subjects for which he had not previously had time. He shone as a student and was especially interested in languages and elocution. He began to appreciate the power a speaker had over an audience, writing that the speaker's platform creates some excitement. I loved agitation and investigation and glory in defending unpopular truth against popular error. Giago was a co-educational, and Garfield was attracted to one of his fellow students, Lucretia Rudolph, whom he later married. To support himself at Giago, he worked as a carpenter's assistant and a teacher. The need to go from town to town to find work as a teacher disgusted Garfield, and he thereafter developed a dislike of what he called place-seeking, which became, he said, a law of my life. In later years, he astounded his friends by letting positions pass that could have been his with the like, with a little politicking. Garfield had attended church more to please his mother than to worship God, but in his latest teens underwent a religious awakening and attended many camp meetings at which one at one of which he was born again on March 4, 1850, baptized into Christ, being submerged in the icy waters of the Chagrin River. Lucretia Garfield in the 1870s. After leaving Giaga, Garfield worked for a year at various jobs, including teaching, finding that some New Englanders worked their way through college. Garfield determined to do the same and sought a school that could prepare him for the entrance examinations. In 18, from 1851 to 1854, he attended the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute, later named Hiram College in Hiram, Ohio, a school run by the disciples. While there, he was most interested in the study of Greek and Latin, but was inclined to learn about and discuss any new thing he encountered. Securing a position on entry as a janitor, he was hired to teach while still a student. Lucretia Rudolph also enrolled at the Institute, and Garfield wooed her while teaching her Greek. He developed a regular preaching circuit at neighboring churches, in some cases earning a gold dollar per service. In 1850, By 1854, Garfield had learned all the Institute, all the Institute could teach him and was a full-time teacher. Garfield then enrolled at Williams College in Williamston, Williamstown, Massachusetts, as a third-year student, giving credit for two-year study at the Institute after passing a cursory, cursory examination. Garfield was impressed with the college president, Mark Hopkins, who had responded warmly to Garfield's letter inquiring about admission. He said of Hopkins, the ideal college is Mark College on one end of a log with a student on the other. Hopkins later said of Garfield in his student days, there was a large general capacity applicable to any subject. There was no pretense of genius or alter alternation, a spasmal effort, but a satisfied accomplishment in all directions. After his first term, Garfield was hired to teach penmanship to the students of nearby Pownall, Vernon, a post period held by Chester A. Arthur. Garfield graduated five Phi Beta Kappa from Williams in August 1856 as salutatorian, giving an address 
at the commencement. His biographer Ira Rutkow writes that Garfield's years at Williams gave Garfield the opportunity to know and respect those of different social backgrounds and that despite his origin as an unsophisticated Western, he was liked and respected by socially conscious New Englanders. In short, Rutkow writes, Garfield had an extensive and positive first experience with the world outside the Western Reserve of Ohio. On his return to Ohio, the degree from a prestigious English school made Garfield a man of distinction. He returned to Hiram to teach at the Institute and in 1857 was made president. He did not see education as a field that would realize his full potential. At Williams, he had become more politically aware in the school's intensely anti-slavery atmosphere and began to consider politics as a career. In 1858, he married Lucretia. They had seven children, five of whom survived infancy. Soon after the wedding, he formally entered his name to read law. 1859, at the office of Oratory Albert Gallatin Riddle, a Cleveland firm, although he did his, he did his studying in Hiram. He was admitted to the bar in 1861. Local Republican leaders invited Garfield to enter politics upon the death of Cyrus Prentice, the presumptive nominee for the local state Senate seat. He was nominated at the party convention on the sixth ballot and was elected serving until 1861. Garfield's major effort in the Senate was a bill provided for Ohio's first geological survey to measure its mineral resources, but it failed. Civil War At the Abraham Lincoln election as president, several southern states announced their secession from the Union to form a new government, the Confederate States of America. Garfield read military texts while anxiously awaiting the war effort, which he regarded as a holy crusade against the slave power. In April 1861, the rebels bombarded Fort Sumter, one of the South's last federal outposts beginning the Civil War. Although he had, not, he had no military training, Garfield knew that his place was in the Union Army. At Governor William Dennis's request, Garfield deferred his military ambitions to remain in the legislature where he helped appropriate the funds to raise and equip Ohio's volunteer regiments. Afterwards, the legislature adjourned and Garfield spent the spring and early summer on a speaking tour of northeastern Ohio, encouraging enlistment in the new re regiments. Following a trip to Illinois to purchase muskets, Garfield returned to Ohio and in eight, August 1861 received the commission as a colonel in the 42nd Ohio Infantry Regiment. The 42nd Ohio existed only on paper, so Garfield's first task was to fill his ranks. He did so quickly, recruiting many of his neighbors and former students. The regiment traveled to Camp Chase outside Columbus, Ohio, to complete training. In December, Garfield was ordered to bring the 42nd to Kentucky, where they joined the Army of the Ohio under Brigadier General John Don Carlos Buell. Buell's Command Buell quickly assigned Garfield the task of driving Confederate forces out of eastern Kentucky, giving him the 18th Brigade for the campaign, which, besides its own 42nd, included the 40th Ohio Infantry, two Kentucky Infantry Regiments, and two Cavalry Units. They departed Cat Catlettsburg, Kentucky, in mid-December, advancing through the valley of the Big Sandy River. The march was uneventful until Union forces reached Paintsville, Kentucky, on January 6, 1862, where Garfield's cavalry engaged the rebels at Jenny's Creek. Confederate troops under Brigadier General Humphrey Marshall held the town in numbers roughly equal to Garfield's own, but Garfield positioned his troops so as to deceive Marshall into believing the rebels were outnumbered. Marshall ordered his troops to withdraw to the forks of Middle Creek on the road to Virginia. Garfield ordered his troops to pursue them. They attacked the rebel positions on January 9, 1862 in the Battle of Middle Creek, the only pitched battle Garfield personally commanded. 
at the fighting's end, the Confederates withdrew from the field, and Garfield sent his troops to Prestonburg to reprovision. In recognition of his success, Garfield was promoted to Brigadier General. After Marshall's retreat, Garfield's command was the sole remaining Union force in eastern Kentucky, and he announced that any man, any men who had fought for the Confederacy would be granted amnesty if they returned to their homes and lived peacefully and remained loyal to the Union. The proclamation was surprisingly lenient as Garfield now believed the war was a crusade for eradication of slavery. Following a brief skirmish at Pound Gap, the last rebel units in the area were outflanked and retreated to Virginia. Garfield's promotion gave him command of the 20th Brigade of the Army of the, of the Ohio, which was orderly, ordered in the early 1860 to join Major, Gen, Major General Ulysses S. Grant forces and as they advanced on Corinth, Mississippi. Before the 20th Brigade arrived, however, Confederate forces under General Robert Sidney Jones to surprise Grant's men in their camps, driving them back. Garfield's troops got word of the battle and advanced quickly, joining the rest of the army on the second day to drive the Confederates back across the, f the field and into retreat. The action, later known as the Battle of Shiloh, was the bloodiest of the war to date. Garfield was exposed to fire for much of the day, but emerged uninjured. Major General Henry W. Halleck Grant Superior took charge of the combined armies and advanced ponderously toward Corinth. When they arrived, the Confederates had fled. That summer, Garfield suffered from jaundice and significant weight loss. He was forced to return home, where his wife nursed him back to health. While he was home, Garfield's friends worked to gain him the reputation the Republican nomination for Congress, but he refused to campaign with the delegates. He returned to military duty that office and went to Washington to await his next assignment. During this period of idleness, a rumor of, of an extramarital affair caused friction in the Garfield's marriage, and the Lucretia eventually chose to overlook it. Garfield repeatedly received tentative assignments that were quickly withdrawn to his frustration. In the meantime, he served on the court-martial of Fitz John Porter for his tardiness at the Second Battle of Bolron. He was convinced of Porter's guilt and voted with his fellow generals to convict. The trial lasted almost two months from November 1862 to January 1863, and Pius and Garfield had procured an assignment as Chief of Staff to Major General William S. Rosecrans. General's, General's Chiefs of Staff were usually more junior officers, but Garfield's influence with Rosecrans was greater than usual. The duties extended beyond communication of orders to actual management of his Army of the Cumberland. Rosecrans had a voracious appetite for conversation, especially where, when able, when unable to sleep in Garfield, he found the first well-read person in the army, and the ideal candidate for discussions that ran deep into the night. The two became close, despite Garfield's being twelve years Rosecrans Jr., and they discussed everything, especially in religion. Rosecrans, who had converted from Methodism to Roman Catholicism, softened Garfield's view of his faith. Garfield recommended that Rosecrans replace Wing Commanders Alexander McCook and Thomas Crittenden, whom he believed ineffective, but Rosecrans ignored the suggestion. With Rosecrans, Garfield devised a Tullahoma campaign to pursue the entrapped Confederate General Braxton Bragg in Tullahoma. After initial Union success, Bragg retreated toward Chattanooga, where Rosecrans stalled and requested more troops and supplies. Garfield argued for an immediate advance in line with the demands from Halleck and Lincoln. After a council of war and lengthy deliberations, Rosecrans agreed to attack. 
At the ensuing Battle of Chickamauga on September 19th and 20th, 1863, confusion among the wing commanders over Rosecrans' order, Rosecrans orders created a gap in the lines, resulting in a rout of the right flank. Rosecrans concluded that the battle was lost and fell back on Chattanooga to establish a defensive line. Garfield, however, thought that part of the army had held and, the, and with Rosecrans' approval, headed across Missionary Ridge to survey the scene. Garfield's hunch was correct, and his ride became legendary where Rosecrans' air reignited criticism about his leadership. While Rosecrans' army had avoided disaster, they were stranded in Chattanooga, surrounded by Bragg's army. Garfield sent a telegram to Secretary of War Edmund M. Stanton, alerting Washington to the need for reinforcements to avoid annihilation, and Lincoln and Halleck delivered 20,000 troops by rail within nine days. In the meantime, Grant was promoted to command of the Western armies and quickly replaced Rosecrans with George H. Thomas. Garfield was ordered to report to Washington, where he was promoted to Major General, a commission he resigned before taking a seat in the House of Representatives. According to historian Gene Edward Smith, Grant and Garfield had a guarded relationship which, since Grant promoted Thomas rather than Garfield to command of the Army of the Cumberland after Rosecrans' dismissal. Congressional con Career While serving in the Army in early 1862, Garfield was approached by friends about running for Congress from Ohio's newly redrawn, redrawn heavily Republican 19th District. He was worried that he and other state-appointed generals would get obscure assignments and running for Congress would allow him to resume his political career. The fact that the new Congress was not, would not hold its first session, regular session until December 1863 allowed him to continue his war of service for a time. Home on medical leave refused to campaign for the nomination, leaving that to political manager who secured, who secured it at the local <coughs> convention in September 1862 on the 8th ballot. In October, he defeated D.B. Woods by a two-to-one margin on, in the general election for a seat in the 38th Congress. Soon after his nomination, Garfield was ordered to report to Sec War Secretary Edwin Stanton in Washington to discuss his military future. There he met Treasury Secretary Salmon P. Chase, who befriended him, seeing him as a younger version of himself. The two agreed politically and both were part of the radical ring of the Republican Party. Once he took his seat in December 1863. Garfield was frustrated that Lincoln seemed reluctant to to press the South hard. Many radicals led in the House by Pennsylvania Thaddeus Stevens wanted rebel-owned land confiscated, but Lincoln threatened to veto any bill to do that on widespread on a widespread basis. In debate on the House floor, Garfield supported such legislation and discussed England's glorious revolution hinted that Lincoln might be thrown out of office for resisting it. Garfield had supported Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation and marveled that it was a strange phenomenon in the world's history when a second-rate Illinois lawyer is, a sec is the instrument, touted instrument to utter words which shall form an epic memorable in all future ages. Garfield only favored abolition of slavery, but believed that the leaders of the rebellion had forfeited their constitutional rights. He supported the confiscation of southern plantations and even exile or execution of rebellion leaders as a means to ensure a permanent end to slavery. Garfield felt Congress obliged to determine what legislation is necessary to secure equal justice to, lo to all loyal persons without regard to color. He was more supportive of Lincoln when Lincoln took action against slavery 
Early in his tenure, he differed from his party on several issues. He was the solitary Republican vote to terminate the use of bounties in recruiting. Some financially able recruits had used the bounty system to buy their way out of service called commutation, which Garfield considered reprehensible. Garfield gave a speech pointing out the flaws in the existing conscription law that if 300,000 called upon to enlist, barely 10,000 had the remainder claiming exemption or providing money or a substitute. Lincoln appeared before the Military Affairs Committee on which Garfield served, demanding a more effective bill even if it could cost him re-election. Lincoln was confident he could win the war before his term expired after many false starts. Garfield and Lincoln's support procured the passage of a conscription bill that excluded commutation. Under Chase's influence, Garfield became a staunch proponent of a dollar backed by a gold standard and was therefore a strong opponent of the greenback. He regretted very much, but understood the necessity for a suspension of payment in gold or silver during the Civil War. Garfield voted with the radical Republicans in passing the Wade Davis bill designed to give Congress more authority over Reconstruction, but was defeated by Lincoln's pocket veto. Garfield did not consider Lincoln particularly worthy of re-election, but there seemed to be no viable alternative. He will probably be the man, though I think we, we could do better. He said, Garfield attended the party convention and promoted Rose, Rosecrans as Lincoln's running mate, but delegates chose military governor of Tennessee, Andrew Johnson. Lincoln and Garfield re-elected. By then, Chase had left the cabinet and had been appointed chief of justice and his relations with Garfield became more distant. Garfield took up the practice of law in 1865 as a means to improve his personal finances. His efforts took him to Wall Street where he, the day after Lincoln's assassination, a riotous crowd led him to an impromptu speech to calm it. Fellow citizens, clouds and darkness are around about him. His pavilion is dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Justice and judgment are the establishment of his throne. Mercy and truth shall go before his face. Fellow citizens, God reigns, and the government at Washington still lives. The speech with no mention of praise of or with no mention of praise of Lincoln was according to Garfield Biograd Robert G. Cald Caldwell. Quiet assassination for what it did not contain as for what it did. In the following years, Garfield had a more praise for Lincoln after, a year after Lincoln's death. Garfield said, Greatest among all these developments were the character and fame of Abraham Lincoln. In 1870, he called Lincoln one of, a, of the few great rulers whose wisdom increased with his power. Reconstruction. Garfield was a firm and was as firm a supporter of black suffrage as he had been of abolition, though he admitted that the idea of African Americans as wise political eagles gave him a strong feeling of repugnance. President Johnson sought the rapid restoration of the Southern states during the months between his accession and the meeting of Congress in December 1865. Garf Garfield hesitantly supported this policy as an experiment. Johnson and old friends sought Garfield's backing, and their conversations led Garfield to assume that Johnson's indifference with Congress was not large. When Congress assembled December to Johnson's chagrin without the elected representatives of the southern states who were excluded, Garfield re-urged re conciliation of his colleagues, although he feared that Johnson, a former Democrat, might join other Democrats to gain political control. Garfield foresaw conflict 
even before February 1866, when Johnson vetoed a bill to extend the life of the Freedmen's Bureau charged with aiding the former slaves. By April, Garfield had concluded that Johnson was either crazy, was either crazy or drunk with opium. The conflict between the branches of government was a major issue of the 1866 campaign, with Johnson taken to the campaign trail in the swing around the circle, and Garfield facing opposition with his party in his home district. With the South still disenfranchised and Northern public opinion behind the Republicans, they gained a two-thirds majority in both houses of Congress. Garfield, having overcome his challengers at his, his district nominee convention, was easily re-elected. Garfield opposed the initial talk of impeaching Johnson when Congress convened in December 1866, but supported legislation to limit Johnson's powers, such as the Tenure of Office Act, which restricted Johnson in removing presidential appointees. Distracted by community duties, he rarely spoke about these bills, but was a loyal Republican vote against Johnson. Due to a court case, he was absent on a day in April 1868 when the House impeached Johnson, but soon gave a speech aligning itself with Thaddeus Stevens and others who sought Johnson's removal. When the president was acquitted in trial before the Senate, Garfield was shocked and blamed the outcome on the trial's presiding officer, Chief Justice Chase, his one-time mentor. By the time Ulysses S. Grant succeeded Johnson in 1869, Garfield had moved away from the remaining radicals. Stevens, their leader, had died in 1868. He hailed the ratification of the 15th Amendment in 1870 as a triumph, and he favored Georgia's readmission to the Union as a matter of right, not politics. <coughs> in 1871, Garfield opposed passage of the Ku Klux Klan Act, saying they I have never been more perplexed by a piece of legislation. He was torn between his indignation at these terrorists and his concern for the freedoms endangered by the power the bill gave the president to enforce the act through suspension of habeas corpus. Stay tuned for part two of U.S. President number 20, Garfield, James Garfield.